how to build a spaceship according to Messiah the Prince. Uh, my name is Dale Travis Maynard. I'm a man who will one day be known as Messiah the Prince. And so I'm going to tell you how to build a spaceship. The reason I'm doing this actually is because um, at this time, God's still concealing me. So I probably am not supposed to talk about this. But um, it's really interesting. So a lot of the words written in the Holy Bible are prophecies of the future, which will come to pass, which sounds odd because they've already come to pass. So for instance, the apostles in the um, New Testament, in what we call like the days after Jesus or during Jesus, um, they wrote in the epistles um, about spiritual things. And there's a lot written about spiritual things that happen uh, in the past. But in the future, there'll be a lot more that happens that are according to the words of prophecy. So, for instance, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against uh, principalities, powers, and uh, spiritual wickedness, spiritual darkness, things like that. I'm kind of adding to what they're saying, not because I'm adding to the Bible, but because I'm um, uh, expounding it, which means to like add in details. So, um, principalities are those that um, kind of protect institutions, organizations, nations, and kingdoms. And so it's just beginning. Now, this is going to sound odd, but angels get it first. So the prophecies are being um, fulfilled among the angels first. So they're learning how to do the principality stuff. And the principality stuff is um, a lot to do with... Um, so anyways, they do spiritual stuff. And so what's interesting is they're doing some of the spiritual stuff now, but there's not a lot of angels doing it. Uh, what's also interesting is that... Um, so what happens is we can be born again. It's not a sin to live in the earth. It's not a sin um, to live as a ghost, a spirit in heaven. And it's not a sin to live again in the earth. It's called being born again. So men and women are born again. And a lot of you might have a dispute with uh, rebirth, reincarnation, and all the Hindu and Buddhist and other uh, ideas about being uh, born again. So I was chosen because um, in part, I've gone the places God sent me in the many lifetimes I've lived. I'm 6,138 years old and I've lived on other worlds and I've lived in uh, other places in time, not only in the past, like many of us you know, have, we were born you know, years ago and now we live. But I also have lived in the future, about 50,000 years in the future. And so what I um, have been able to do is see all the technology that's been built so far uh, in, um, the universe actually at least a lot of it not all of it and so when I look at the space travel um, what often is lacking is a fundamental understanding of what's needed to build a spaceship so it can be called anything uh, you want almost it, it can be called a spaceship um, it can be called a space vehicle. We typically call it space because there's a lot of space up there, but one day there might not be as much space. There might be more planets and you might say worlds. And uh, then um, there might be um, a lot of uh, stuff in the way. So we might call it, you know, inhabited realms or something weird, which might sound weird now, but it might be a place in the future where we might call it that. So if you wanted to, you could call it a a space wagon if you wanted to make a spaceship that hauled stuff or you could call it a um, video game name if you want to call it like a heavy cruiser you could call it that or a um, you know a dreadnought warship if that's what you wanted to build which I don't like the idea of that but um, you could make one of those if you wanted to there's I mean 
all men are free. It's unfortunately, men make war machines first. Somebody can make a space bus that travels around in the space and does tours. So <clears throat> what we're often lacking is a fundamental understanding of design principles that are required. So this can be a bit drab at first, and then I'll talk about the drive, uh, what causes spaceships to go a little bit later in the podcast. And I'll tell you why we use the word go right now. Um, a spaceship can move in many directions, but the engine and the drive systems and the maneuvering systems are um, often a limiting factor that prevent the spaceship from doing a number of required maneuvers. A spaceship can go up and down, forward and back, left and right. It can rotate, it can turn, and it can do a couple other um, maneuvers as well that are required in space if you're going to do every kind of um, movement. So when we build a spaceship, um, let's do all the design principles as fast as possible. The first thing we're going to need is to decide what we want to do with it where we want to go, what we want to do when we get there, who we want to see. Do we want to bring people with us and bring people back? Um, Like, is it a transport ship or are we delivering a few people or a lot? Um, Because then we would need seating. I like spaceships where we stand and don't use feet controls. I like simple controls rather than complex controls. And um, also, um, I've built seven spaceships and they're the fastest spaceships in the universe by far. And um, after considering all these things, I've found a lot. We need displays that can see what's ahead of us, but also um, give us sensor data. So we also need maps. So if you're gonna do displays, you typically need um, two or three displays. One would display would display the map, um, not only of where you are, but where you're going. You might want a sensor display um, if you're gonna use sensors to try to detect proximity and distance. But you also want a visual display in case anything in space moved since the last time you were there. There might be rocks or planets that have gone around a star or something. And so you want a visual display as well. So when you do this, then you're deciding things like windows, but we'll get to that in a minute. So we've got the displays. The next thing you're gonna to wanna to decide who, what, when, or why, how, um, all of that stuff is how fast do you wanna get there? When you're using a visual display, you realize that there's a limit to how fast you can travel in a spaceship because everything becomes a blur if you start to travel really fast. And so there's actually a limit to how fast you can travel unless you're going through open space, which is actually a lot more difficult to find than you might think. Because it's difficult to orientate in space. When we're in space, there is an up and down, north, south, east, and west. And if you don't know which is up and which is down, you can get severely lost in space. And if you go up too high, you lose um, proximity to the, um, what we might call now landmarks, but later we might call uh, coordinate location systems or um, uh, fixed points in space that are relative position location systems. So we can figure out where we are and where we're going. And so when you get too high up or too far down, you might lose um, contact with those. The galaxy we're in is in the northeast of space, near the center plane uh, between up and down, between what you might call the top and the bottom in space. And so, if you're gonna travel in this galaxy, there's, I think, about a thousand worlds that are inhabited with men. And that's a lot. And uh, the distance is, you know, quite large. So, when we're traveling, most of what we're doing is going back and forth from where we are to go visit and then to return. But if you're doing long trips, then you start to have a lot of need for storage, oxygen, water, food, toilets, showers, and or washing rag bucket systems where you use like, an old school version would be a bucket, but a new school system would be like a, um, 
a bucket with a lid that's permanently fixed to the ship. Now, when you're designing the ship, another problem occurs. When you're traveling at high speeds, even in space, there's a problem with vibration during um, speed changes. And so when you have a lot of things bolted to the ship, they might vibrate violently and start to tear the ship apart from the inside. So that's a huge problem when you're storing things in ships. So the less you bring during space travel, the better. Also, if you put um, rubber grommets between the um, objects and the hull of the ship or however you're bolting it, then it might wobble vibrate, which might be worse. It might put slack in the momentum because the ship's being propelled forward. And so the stuff inside wobbling will actually cause the drive. Uh, see, it's like pulling the ship forward. So it might wobble, wobble, wobble. It might strain the drive and make it difficult to go at a consistent speed during a, um, acceleration or deceleration speed changes. Um, so once we decide all of that, then we decide what we need for the ship. Now, typically when you design a ship, you might think to design the hull, but what I like to do is design the whole ship at once. If we design the hull first and then the interior, we're approximating the size and then we might end up redesigning the ship over and over and over again because we don't know exactly what will be in it or where will it go. So what we do is we visualize the ship. You don't need technology to do this. You just um, visualize it. And when you use your imagination to do this, you can actually realize there's a lot of problems inside of the ship if you put too much or too little stuff. For instance, if you're standing and you have consoles, then if we have a lot of stuff in the way, you can't go from console to console. If you have things in the ship that are not um, stationary, then uh, what will happen is when you pivot your head, you might actually slide your hand across the controls and maneuver the ship. If you have a ship that requires two or more operators to, um, to make it go, you know, if somebody controls um, pitch and movements left to right while someone else controls acceleration and the movements up and down, what ends up happening is you have to talk the whole time and you can't really talk about anything else. So then the travel becomes less of a social trip and more of a continual job. So what, what we do when we imagine this is we imagine where people will stand and what they will touch. The reason we would use four consoles is because someone might be doing communication and visual display confirmation at the rear of the ship to make sure that there's no enemy spaceships approaching to attack and also to confirm what's behind you if you wanted to confirm navigation. At the front of the ship, the pilot, the controls when we go forward, needs a visual display and also navigation available to him. He can stop the ship at any time if he has a, a ship designed to do this or place it in like a coast like drifting at that speed while he looks at the navigation where there's no chance of collision ahead. Typically when we travel, we go up, go to the place where we want to go, another world, and then we land the ship. And the reason we do that is because we're looking to travel where there's no barriers or obstacles. But if you're traveling through the galaxy, that means most of the navigation will be based on the um, preventing colliding with obstacles because there's a lot of worlds in the way if you're traveling at a reasonably high speed then worlds are zipping past you every you know let's say every five or ten seconds sometimes faster or slower and then there's a place where there's no what you'd call a solar system i don't call it a solar system but stars and worlds 
and then um, he needs to see he needs to have the navigation available to him if he's asking someone else they can't confirm the navigation and he can't confirm it either so all he sees is the world's ahead of him he uses that to confirm now if you travel a lot in space you actually can use visual confirmation it's kind of like learning a road where there's trees fences and familiar objects and when you travel past worlds they begin to look familiar it's almost like traveling a road the difference is there's no permanent road in the earth we leave footprints and in space we don't so the the pilot determines whether we go forward or not and he needs to be able to make emergency decisions whether to go right or left up or down so that's um, kind of fundamentals about navigation and steering and control and design now when we consider that we realize if we have all this happening if there are other people in the position um, of the ship where they're standing near the controls what will happen is they will um, people standing there might be in the way and then um, not only might they distract everyone by turning everyone's heads around if they're standing at the middle of the ship but also they might um, be welcome uh, visitors the problem is if you're gonna have a lot of people on the ship, then you have inertial problems with acceleration and deceleration. So if you're gonna have a ship designed for um, high-speed travel, then what you're gonna need is, um, let's consider that movie, what was the movie called where they got radio waves? Uh, you need to be able to have the technology to receive communications from other worlds. And the reason you need that technology is, um, When we're in space, we might need communication, and so we end up using broadband communication, expecting that they might send any kind of signal. But once you have regular communication, you don't really need that. It's just like channels. Uh, it's not exactly similar to military walkie-talkie kind of stuff because it's um, being transmitted from long distances, um, but it's more like a channel. And so it's the ability to actually amplify the signal from the other place. And so electricity is a problem because it contaminates the signal and adds in um, uh, contamination from the electricity. So an electrical amplification system will actually contaminate the signal. And even though it might uh, increase what we might consider to be like the um, dynamic, um, it would um, also add in contamination, which would replace the audible signal. So what we want is, um, in the earth you'd probably right now use some sort of electricity uh, contamination filter uh, near the um, sensor machine if, and so it wouldn't hopefully wouldn't contaminate the machine and so um, that would be a little bit about the communication system um, when we're designing this ship it, then we design a few other things there's a lot of reasons to go to space and one of them is to do mining there's a lot of rocks in space that are stationary that are not on any maps and there are some in this galaxy so when you, um, if a civilization is able to go to space, they can actually go to large rocks, which are um, huge. And if they figure out how to mine, I think those rocks are entirely there for mining. They have metals that are familiar on Earth, iron and other things like that. But they also have sometimes, um, you know, one, maybe two unfamiliar metals in small amounts, which would be enough to, you know, for a civilization like the Earth to kind of do some experiments and figure out what that metal's like and is it something that can be um, found in the earth and that kind of stuff, which is, you know, obviously inter interesting. Exploration is really the primary reason men might think to go to space, but a big part of exploration is to meet other people. And um, 
to go on the other worlds. And I don't want to say a lot about what the other worlds are like, but <clears throat> when we go to the other worlds, it's important that they don't steal our spaceship. So when you get there, if you go to every world with a squadron of Marines guarding your spaceship, then they might see you as unfriendly and they might really not want you to come back. So it's important to design a spaceship that no one can steal because otherwise you're stranded on another world. And um, then, you know, if you're stranded, how do you communicate with the Earth and tell them to send rescue? And how long will that take? So a lot of the space travel that I think we'll see in the future is going to be um, limited by a person's ability to um, choose math and physics knowledge that is correct and go in the face of um, the prevailing uh, theory. Because the current math in the world is insufficient for designing space travel and the current physics are insufficient for designing space drive the reason I say space drive is because you really only need one one space drive is sufficient a civilization might design one space drive and every ship might have that same drive we might say drive system or drive um, physics so another civilization might have a different drive now, when you do this, you do it to your advantage because when you go to other civilizations, what's the most valuable things you can trade? It might be gold, food might have value, you might have you know metals and things, and those are heavy cargo to haul, but what would you really trade? If you're at the bartering table with other space-faring um, civilizations, then you might also trade, uh, civilizations that can travel through space, you might also trade uh, knowledge of technology. So the more you have your own proprietary technology, the more um, leverage you have at a bargaining table to um, trade with other civilizations. Now, you don't want your ships to get stolen because civilizations might try to steal your technology and then you might not have that leverage at the bargaining table and then you might have nothing to bargain if you want to get technology from them. So a trade is one of the best deals you can get in space, a trade of technology, uh, a trade of knowledge. Now, one of the challenges we have in space travel is recovery of spaceships. So um, they need to be designed to be recovered. And if you put in tow hooks, you'll end up tearing your spaceship apart. If you calculate the speeds that you travel in space, then the metal will not be strong enough unless you make a new metal. When I made spaceships, I made a new metal that had never been made and I made a spaceship recovery system that you know hopefully never needs to be used. But um, it's important that we consider that because if you're using tow hooks, then you'll end up traveling at such a slow speed that it might take 10,000 years to bring the spaceship back from a short distance. Conversely, if someone with faster ships than you, or if someone with another ship uh, from another civilization finds yours drifting, they might go learn all the secrets of your technology, bring it back and sell it to you. And then you have nothing at the bargaining table and then you have, you know, your only option is to buy back your ship that they've recovered if they can figure out how to do it. No one in the universe right now has tractor beam technology or energy shields. As far as I know, it doesn't exist. And um, the combat is based entirely on uh, what we may call positioning or posturing. Uh, assembling in a formation in order to um, stave off an attack. Spaceships are so difficult to make and so uh, so expensive, difficult and expensive, that um, it's typically preferred to have no combat because um, a loss of one or two ships might take many, many, many years to replace. 
um, some civilizations might take 10 years to build one spaceship. So if they lose two spaceships, then it might take them 20 years to build it. Resources, time, money. Um, it's expensive and difficult. It might need to be tested. So um, when we design our ship, we got a lot of different options. We're looking at the hull. Now, one thing we're looking at is the window. If you have a window on a spaceship, the fixture might cause it to vibrate and break. So one of the most important parts about a spaceship design isn't the component design. It's the assembly um, detail. Someone that um, cares a lot about the spaceship going in space will assemble the window perfectly centered between four center bolt holes. And when they do this, uh, the spaceship being perfectly centered before, between those holes, um, the window is less likely to vibrate, crack, or wobble. So if you're using a, um, a transparent window in a spaceship, you're gonna have a lot of problems with it cracking. And so you might look at superior glass design, but um, it's important that it's positioned at perfect center. If it's off center to one side, then you might get vibration and wobble, and you might call it bowing at the center of the glass, but I'd call it wobbling because there's no word to describe the, um, the effect. It's like a transfer of phase energy in the front of and behind the window that is affected dramatically um, when we do the installation. So installation of the components is really important. If on a space rocket they were very careful about installation, and if they installed everything where the bolts, the bolt holes are perfectly aligned and the bolt is located in the center of the bolt hole, then there might be a lot less vibration, uh, wobble, and um, dynamic phase shift and phase shift, those four different things. And then there might be a, um, a lot less space uh, shuttle, space rocket accidents from the Earth if they were very diligent and careful with the assembly positioning everything at the center of the bolt hole. Bolt holes are perfectly aligned with the bolt at the perfect center and also the object aligned so it's perfectly centered. Um, the phase shift and the dynamic phase shift, I'd say, are um, pertaining to the um, dynamic phase shift pertaining to the sun and the um, dynamic movements of worlds. You might think of magnet shift. Like, um, I might talk about that someday, magnet shift. And then with um, phase shift, you might think of... Um, the light from the sun and um, effects from worlds relative to the worlds, I guess you might say. And then you might think of magnets again, uh, and then it might make more sense if you think of those things, and I might talk about it in more detail someday. Because right now I'm not telling you everything about building the ship. We're kind of, I haven't even got to the drive system yet, what makes it go. We typically call that drive in the earth, I think, or propulsion. But the reason I call it drive rather than propulsion is because when you use a propulsion system that pushes on the back, the front goes forward, and when you travel at exceedingly high speeds, faster than any rocket has ever gone, then what happens is um, the front of the rocket begins to um, move at a lateral um, line away from the center, and that will actually cause a shear force uh, someplace near the mid of the rocket. You might think the midline, but it can happen any place um, along the rocket. It'll probably happen in the um, second, third, of the rocket if the propulsion is in the rear, if it's propelled by a rocket. And um, 
So if we decide to use propulsion, then you would have to account for the propulsion being probably near the front of the ship with like two plane wings, one to the right, one to the left. And then you have to deal with the shear forces at the um, attachments of each of the wings. And you start to have a lot of um, shear force problems um, when you use propulsion. So it's better to use a system that we might call a drive system that makes it go. Um, and the Earth does not have a whole lot of access to that technology yet. Now, when we talk about um, the propulsion system, I'm an advocate for one day making a propulsion system that can't leave the Earth. And the reason is when we go at very high speeds, we need to go above ground. We'll destroy things on the ground, and also there's bouncing up and down. And anyone that designs railroads is familiar with the vibration um, problems with uh, building a road, typically out of an uneven surface. So, uh, yeah, what they do when they make a road is they're taking an uneven surface and they're trying to make it even, asphalt or concrete. That's what the um, asphalt crew or the concrete crew does. They take an uneven surface and they try to make it even. And um, the next thing is the math. Because no one in the earth has ever gone faster than light. They're not sure exactly how it works, but I can tell you that in my experience, what the way it works is exactly like going slower than light. There's no gap. And so there's a problem when we try to approximate um, the relative distance, or we might call the travel of the world past us as we go past it. And then we might have the square root of minus one problem, which is, I think, a resultant um, entirely from inaccurate measurements from a wrong understanding of relative uh, distances, or excuse me, relative travel speeds. When the world we're approaching, um, so we're going past it on the right and the world's on the left, we might measure it in three positions, and then we might come up with a relative difference in uh, distance if we do our math incorrectly because of an incorrect um, math, like a math error. So what we do in order to solve this problem is we see that the world has traveled the same relative distance to our left as we have traveled to the right. And then the error goes away. So in space, men have difficulty doing math from A to B. Uh, believe it or not, I think that every astronomer in the Earth and probably every astrophysicist makes this error resulting in a square root of negative one error calculation. And so they would have difficulty navigating. The only way they would get there is to travel a distance, stop, recalculate their position and do that over and over again. It would require stopping probably because they would want to compare against fixed points in space, probably looking at the position of worlds or stars. I prefer to use worlds for space travel rather than stars because there might be an optical illusion with the light. When we're farther away, the star does seem to look different. And when we're traveling at high speeds, there might be a blur. So I like to be able to see worlds. And you can see the world often on the dark side of the world quite well. It's not nearly as dark as we expect. It's kind of like looking at the earth uh, at night. If you look at the dark side of the earth at night from space, you can still see some things about it. And because the satellites are not that far away. It doesn't look the same as what you'd see from a spaceship. We travel at a much farther distance, but, um, and not only to, to avoid things like satellites, but just typically for safety. If you're traveling at a high speed, you just go around things. You don't brush past them at high speeds. That would be considered reckless space travel, reckless spaceship travel. So when we, um, travel past worlds at high speeds,
We might think about building our spaceship like a, um, a bus travel system where everyone gets to see where we're going. If we brush past it at high speeds, we can't really see what we're looking at. So we go far enough away, and then what you see is kind of a shadow of the world with a little bit of detail. There's like a little bit of earth visible, but it looks black, maybe some mountains or trees. And so from far away, you can still see the dark side of the world and navigate past it. I've never seen a world that was um, really that surprising. There are some that are dark, I think, but you can typically see it and navigate around it, even from a long distance away at extremely high speeds. When we travel uh, past worlds, or, um, the ships I designed um, not long ago, <laughs> are capable of traveling the entire galaxy in approximately two or four days. And um, the reason I chose that speed is a big part of space travel is actually to see where we're going and where we've been, to look ahead of us and to look behind. The reason we look behind is because it will still be there on the way back, and we want to know our way back. So someone that looks behind the whole time at the rear of the ship, when you do the return travel, they can confirm that you're traveling the same places that you were before. All they have to do is turn around on the return travel and look at the front of the ship and they can say, oh yeah, I remember all of these places. We're traveling the same way. It's very important when we travel that we travel the same way over and over again. And so that's a big part of the ship to see. But also there's something about the seeing the beauty of space and the magnificence of the creation. When we travel in space, we see this black darkness and it's absolutely magnificent above the light. The nearest two worlds would take, um, the nearest world that has people on it in my ship one or two hours to get to from the earth in a falralkin ship it would take approximately one day because of acceleration and deceleration there's a little bit of extra time from the ship controls controlling the ship and, and um with four a falralkin takes a little bit of time that takes a little bit of the time also stopping takes and landing i call it parking the ship uh, with the falralkin um, it's important to know that it's parking rather than uh, landing because when the Falralkin ships land, they kind of got to go down and then they kind of whoop forward it like, um, think of the letter U, they, it goes down and then goes forward. Um, they kind of park like a car almost, or like a horse actually, going up to a tie line. So um, when we travel in those ships, it might take about that amount of time, but with um, uh, other technology, we could probably get there very fast. If you build technology that had no inertial dampening system, which is what we imagine in sci-fi, and it doesn't um, get used, no civilization I know of uses it, but if you had no inertial dampening system but a really fast um, acceleration and deceleration, you could probably get to those near worlds in about four days, largely because of the time to accelerate and decelerate. The ships I made pretty much go from zero to, to the chosen speed immediately. Not zero to full speed. They go to, if, I, if the chosen speed is full speed, it's almost immediate. Um, I think it can go from zero to full speed in 0 0.78 seconds with no G-forces and no drag. It feels fucking amazing. They feel so cool. But um, if you have uh, problems with inertia, then you would have what the Earth calls G-forces, what you call in the Earth G-forces. And so you need to accelerate and decelerate and so it's a continual acceleration to top speed and then a continual deceleration until you get there. So you actually have to plan your trip. And if you mess that up, then you got to go past the world and turn around and come back and land. Then there's the survey of the world. Um, but if you have um, 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 technology that creates a, an artificial gravity, then you can go upside down on the worlds and uh, travel in all different directions. If you have 
a ship that has no artificial gravity, then going upside down feels disorienting, I think. Just a little bit of uh, something interesting to talk about. If you're looking for something to talk about on a podcast. Now, there are times in space when you might want light. Primarily, if you encounter something that you can't see well, that could be an enemy ship that's made that was really dark, and it's in an area where there's not reflective. So you might use light to illuminate it. And so the power required to produce a light to travel the distance of like, let's say 10 million miles or 10 million kilometers, then is a lot. And what you might wanna do is illuminate a large area. And so we might say 10 million kilometers squared to find spaceships that are the size of a, you know, two pickup trucks parked side by side. Maybe a little bigger, but maybe like one in the back or like, you know, get the idea like, big trucks, like pickup trucks, you know. So in order to illuminate 10 million square kilometers and produce enough light, you would need a tremendous amount of energy. Um, and so it, depending on the system of the ship, this if you use the ship with the design I'm um, thinking of, that would be a motionless drive system with perpetual energy. So there's no fuel requirements and no storage required. You would have to stop this ship. It would have to come to a full stop or um, you shut the engine off and have no control. And then you'd be able to probably produce um, about 8 million square kilometers worth of light. So you would need, so in order to travel in space, you have enormous energy requirements. And so the difficulty in, de- in building a drive system is um, producing the energy requirements. And um, it would take much of the Earth's power to try to do something, to just to try to do something like that. And it wouldn't be successful. So. Um, what you would do if you wanted to do this is you would try to figure out a drive system based on a correct knowledge of math and physics. And so the, the difficulty is design. So if you want to design one, what you can do is you can look at things that already go in space. Now, planets go around a sun typically, or a star we would say. Um, the Earth is the only one I call the sun. The rest I call stars. They are all different than the sun. They are all different. And um, I've seen them in this galaxy, many of them, uh, up close. I've seen them all from far away, and I have a star map of every star and every world. So we look at things that go in space. Now, one thing we look at that goes is worlds, what else goes in space? If you think about that, you might be able to figure out how to do a drive system. What else goes in space? Light, light goes in space. And then, so if you can find anything that goes in space, you know, um, it goes forth, it goes forward, it goes around. You might find things that go up or go down. If you can find anything that goes in space, that's why I'm using the word go. It sounds like a simple word, but it's an open opportunity to observe many different type of dynamic movements. Then we might be able to consider a drive system. And so I've been working on simple drive systems. And the reason I'm working on this is because in the earth, if men start traveling to space, they might leave and never come back. And so uh, I've been considering that and also space travel. And also progression. If I come to, if I give you the best technology that I have, then you might not develop any of the other things that you would think to develop, and then you don't have anything at the bargaining table. Now, the primary purpose of the hull of the ship is actually really, really complex. So there's no single purpose. Like if I did a, uh, 
podcast just on the hall design, it'd be um, over and 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 over. So the basic things we think about is we don't want to have collision, we don't want the hall to break, we don't want it to leak air and things like that. If it leaks a little air, that's okay as long as you have a little bit of pressure. In movies, they show people flying out of the spaceship at high speeds, but that's only in a really like high pressurized system where that might happen because the air might try to push them out. It's really air. There's no like gravity or draw pulling a person out. That's only if they have an overly pressurized air system would they kind of like do something similar to that. So what I would say is when we design the hall, we're trying to figure out um, like how big it is and stuff and how strong you want the metal. Uh, if you're going to go with a really weak metal, you might want a multi-hall honeycomb kind of multi-stratified system with a buckler. So if you collide with something, the honeycomb buckles, the outside gets damaged, but the second and the third hall don't break and then you don't have air leaks. Um, patching a, an air leak in space is actually a lot simpler than it sounds. It's just like doing a, um, well, I might talk about that another day. So that's the kind of the hull design. Now in war, since nobody has energy shields, we typically have a thick hull that's extremely heavy metal. And that puts a heavy load on the drive and it greatly slows down acceleration and deceleration, how fast we can go. And that determines how fast we can get there, but also how quickly we stop. That's important because if we can't stop quickly, then we have to start slowing down halfway through our trip. Then there's weapons. Bullets and uh, missiles are extremely ineffective in space because of the distance. There are very few bullets or missiles that would travel um, 10,000 miles fast enough to get there to the enemy. They would just move out of the way. So if you think about space war or space combat, you're, you might be at a distance of 10,000 miles, more or less. You can see things in space at 10,000 miles. So whether you have sensors or anything, if there are missiles, you might even see those. So what you would see is at 10,000 miles, at that extremely long distance, um, those weapons are ineffective. So when would you use missiles and things like that? Uh, somebody might use it for mining, actually. They wanted to detonate a rock at a distance. But the problem is, if I was building spaceships in the Earth, if I was the master of the spaceship design in the Earth, the, the Earth space program, um, I would say no missiles on any spaceships ever. And the reason I would say that is, as soon as there's missiles and bullets in space, idiots are going to go up there and cowboy around and start blowing things the fuck up. And the reason I say that is they might just want to see what happens. They might not even notice that there was a house down there and they blew up somebody's cattle, their, uh, little, um, their little house, maybe people in the house died. If they're out on a rock, they didn't look and see if there's someone on the other side of the rock mining it. They're just irresponsible. So men are very irresponsible with missiles in space. Let's just, think even, let's just imagine that it happens. It doesn't happen really that much, except in the Earth. Earth's shooting missiles up into space sometimes. So... Um, above the surface of the earth men have detonated nuclear bombs and other bombs they wanted to see what they would have what they would do in space but like i said they're very ineffective weapons in space the enemy might just move out of the way and they might not even be the enemy if you're not if you're not communicating with them you don't know if they're the enemy so the communication system is your first thing you do you need a visibility system in order to see them you know like a window or whatever and then uh, you might want sensors, I guess, if you want. But um, Then your next thing is you talk to them. And in space, like I said, it's generally preferred not to do war. Because spaceships are so expensive 
and difficult to build and time consuming. So if I wanted to um, build a spaceship in space or in the earth, I would want to make sure that the earth way is a very slow, time consuming way because I wouldn't want people, if, if in the earth you built a whole bunch of affordable spaceships that can be built in two days and they have a room for a pilot and a weapon, then you might have a whole bunch of uh, Al-Qaeda suicide mission attack squads flying around in space. And then it's war, not peace. And it's death, not exploration. And it's killing anyone that, you know, flinches. Military men might kill anyone that makes a weird move. But if you've ever worked in the military and civilian crossover in, like, the deep government, then you know that civilians don't know what looks like a threat. They might lift their hand fast, but it doesn't mean that they're going to punch you. They're just used to talking with their hands that way because they're visually demonstrating their, you know, physics idea. Like, things go up and then to the right, and they're moving their hands that way where they bounce. And then a military man might think that's a threat, like it's waving a gun or a knife, even if there's nothing in their hand. So if military men have spaceships, then someone might approach suddenly and stop suddenly. That's how I would do it. I'd just, I'd be there faster than you could see me. The ships I built can see the entire galaxy from the front and again, the entire galaxy from the back. But if you look from front and back, it's kind of weird doing it like that. I I don't want to talk about how that works, but because there's like a pitch at the um, axial of the eye, what you call peripheral vision, I guess. But um, you can see, I can see the whole galaxy from the spaceships when I made those. So when you're trying to view in a spaceship, I would just suddenly be there and I would appear and they might not know if it's a threat and I might move front, back, left, talking to them like a social conversation, but from the inside of a ship. And they might think that's a threat to the military because somebody's moving fast. And that's because they're over... Um, prepared to murder everyone and underprepared to talk. So it's better to send diplomats that are, um, that have no profit from telling lies and no profit from war and no profit from mining other worlds. If you send people that are just interested in conversation, they might come back and speak to people that are interested in conversation. And then the military and the politicians hear about it last. And that's what you want because they're not going to be the first to go. You want them to be the last to hear about it. And also with space travel, you want it to be ubiquitous-ish or not. See, if only the military has space travel technology, then the first one to develop space weapons can control the whole world. Now, the next thing to talk about is gravity. Um, when we talk, when we think about an engine, the main challenge with de- developing an engine, a rocket, or a go system is overcoming gravity. And the reason I say that is actually gonna sound, um, it, Earth experts will say like, well, that's obvious. Actually, it isn't. I don't think any of you have ever thought of it. When you have a space system, a space engine, you want it to go up from the Earth and down to the Earth. So it needs to do it as if gravity isn't a limiting factor. So it's better to think of overcoming gravity rather than resisting it. Rockets, you might say, are designed to resist gravity. Gravity's pulling the rocket down. There's the weight of the rocket pulling it down. But in a well-designed ship, it goes um, at the exclusion of, or with the exclusion of gravity, it doesn't matter. And at the exclusion of, and with the exclusion of either one, the weight of the ship, it doesn't matter. 
So instead of lifting the heavy ship up into space by resisting gravity, we go with the exclusion of the weight of the ship. That's how we designed the um, propulsion system, if you wanted to call it that. You can, you can maybe say that or think about it. That's an interesting and effective way to think about a spaceship drive system. So I think the reason why men use rocket ships, and they might always do this, is because of the zero minus negative one equals one problem. Now, when men think of this, they think about losing something, so they think the answer is negative one. But when you do zero minus negative one, you end up with one someplace else, you might say, or a difference of one. Minus is looking at the difference, and that's a kind of a way of thinking about math. It's like a lower way of thinking about math, but the zero minus negative one equals one problem is that men tend to think that they've lost something. Men tend to think about how high um, they can up go. And they tend to think about how far from earth down up been. And so they're thinking of this and um, they're trying to get up faster. So they tend to think about it as if they're losing something by not getting up faster rather than looking at the difference, how far they've gone from the earth. So they tend to think about more of how to get more speed out of the acceleration um, uplift dry, um, rocket go system that they have rather than trying to find a new and more effective way based on knowledge that they can go up. A new and more effective way based on knowledge that they can go up is a system that is determined by our minds. Where I'm from, I spoke uh, at long length in what was called the um, former system. And, excuse me, the former way. You might call it the former system, but I call it the former way. I wouldn't call it a system because I had a tremendous amount of knowledge about the ships. I designed them and built them myself. And so I would speak at great length, often two or three or four hours, uninterrupted, and they would write down every one of my words. So I call that the former manner. And the reason I call it the former manner is I don't do it anymore. There are very few men that want to hear that speaking because they don't prefer knowledge. But in order to have the system that um, goes up in the way that we want, rather than up, go, like I think about a man that really wants to go up bad. He's like, up, 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 go, go, go. That's the up, go kind of feeling he might have. A man that designs the system and has a passion for it might have an interest in the fundamentals and the prep might be what I call the former manner. Someone with knowledge like me talking about the fundamental design system principles or the fundamental design principles. If you want to have a system in the earth, then we need principles with which to design uh, space travel things that are much longer lasting. The current space travel system is based on the um, presumption that if we build temporary technology now, longer lasting technology to travel farther might come out of it in the future. And that won't happen with that kind of thinking. It's, it's not a principled kind of thinking, it's unstable. We fall off the edge when we go forward. So to do a full um, leaving the earth, um, you know, leaving the earth and going up, exposition for me might take probably about two hours of uninterrupted speaking to an audience that's interested. And we would speak about physics, math, and design principles. So we can still have the same uh, excitement for space travel and leaving the earth and going 
um, up into space and returning later when we have a space system that's designed on uh, rather than turning off but turning on. As we go up in rockets, we, we keep turning off the uh, one rocket and dropping it back to the Earth. You know, it's turn it off, and then it gets dropped, and then turn the next one off. It happens soon as turn it off, and then it gets dropped. So we keep turning things off, trying to go up. But a system that's based on turning things on as we go up would be effective so we can still have the same excitement for leaving the Earth and going into space. And um, it would probably work very well. So I'd be interested in designing those systems or working with men who like to design those systems if they can be placed in the hands of free men with knowledge who are trusted, uh, free men that are not um, in the military and not government, they're not controlled or regulated by anyone. And then, so perf you know, like perfectly free. If they go maybe 10 years where the military doesn't try to steal their technology where they weren't, aren't harassed by governments and military, where they're not shot down for no reason to tr by a government that wants to steal the technology. So where all the militaries just stop trying to murder everyone in order to try to steal technology. Then after about 10 years, I might be interested in designing systems that are for the government and the military in a similar way, designing it with them or designing it for them. In fact, I'd prefer to design a system that can be recovered if it's ever misused by military, but not recovered by the military and not a third party organization because then you're adding bureaucratic weight to oppression in the earth. And so it'd have to be recovered by someone that everyone trusts. Now the reason I choose me is because I trust me. But if it can't be recovered, that means if it gets ever in the hands of someone that can misuse it, then there might be a lot of problems. And so the, um, if the military ever gets one of these systems, I would want to make sure it's designed uh, so that free men can have it also. Otherwise, there might be oppression from one government. That's a bit heavy, but there are a lot of men that are interested in that kind of military discussion. They do think that is interesting. You know, whether the military ought to have control over all spaceships in the whole Earth. Now, when you design a spaceship, you don't need control towers and um, like the air control towers for air airplanes. Uh, in order to navigate them, guide them in, and prevent them from crashing. You design the ship so that it's possible for the pilot to prevent it from crashing. And then you don't place it in the hands of those that are irresponsible. And right now on the Earth, we don't give spaceships to 15-year-olds, for instance. But we also don't give it to a 45-year-old man who's um, equally irresponsible. We would only want them to be in the hands of those that are capable of building them. And the reason I say that is someone who's capable of building the ship is also capable of... Um, navigating it through the galaxy, uh, also uh, piloting it safely, and they're probably also most interested in peace among everyone in the Earth. So those that are the most peaceful are probably the ones that are the most likely to be able to build it by themselves. So I would say that as a rule, if someone's not able to um, build it, they're probably also not able to pilot it, navigate it, and also be peaceful when they travel to Earth or in any world. So those that are the most peaceful, the most um, kind, the most gentle, the most compassionate, the most spiritual, the most loving, with the most loving kindness, the most tenderhearted, um, the most righteous, the most brilliant, the ones that are the most um, 
trusted would be the ones that might also be the ones to build it and then they might be the ones to use it. If they build it, it's theirs. So that would be probably the most successful. And it, here's the, another reason to choose them. If you ever have a dispute with someone like that, they would be probably willing to talk to you, to talk with you about it, and they'd be reasonable to talk with. Someone, uh, if it's controlled by the military, they would keep it all in secrets. So no one steals their technology. Someone, one man might build part of it, and then someone else might pilot it once it's built. Now, space travel really doesn't need weapons. In order to travel and discuss with people, we would have um, a spaceship system where we would travel. Now, if no one had weapons, probably no one would want them as much. Maybe you'd want them a lot. So um, that's kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, it'd be an interesting conversation. But as soon as one spaceship has weapons, almost everyone might want them because then there might be a space pirate that tries to steal spaceships. And what they would bring is two crews, one to pilot the first ship and one, to, once they steal the spaceship, to pilot the second spaceship so they can steal spaceships. Spaceships might be the most valuable thing in the whole um, galaxy according to some men. Now, not according to me, but the knowledge required to build one and pilot one and navigate one is immense. So, um, in, having that knowledge, a man could teach quickly how to build those things, but we run into a challenge right away. When we say a spaceship can be used for peace, many might dispute whether peace is uh, preferred. So that's an interesting discussion that would be um, interesting to hear. Space travel is something that might happen after world peace. Now, one reason I would want to build spaceships right now is to take a photograph of the galaxy. So if men built in the Earth a spaceship that could go up a very high distance, it would probably be roughly seven times the width of the Milky Way galaxy. So we would go up that distance. Then we could take a photograph of the Milky Way galaxy. But, you know, it might be closer, depending on how close you wanted to be. With um, glass magnification and things like that, you might want to be um, you know less high in the air instead of zooming in it might actually zoom out and be more of a broad angle lens like a GoPro lens but then you would have an actual photo of the Milky Way galaxy from above and that would be fucking astonishing it'd be incredible to have a photograph like that so one thing that'd be interesting to see is a photograph of that and you could also see um, other galaxies from a different perspective and it'd be interesting for men that want to measure how far away stars and galaxies are because you could actually see them if you were high enough up you could see them as galaxies and then you can see God's magnificent creation. It's huge. And the reason I say that is really simple. As Messiah the Prince will one day be called, and there might be many men called Messiah. There's, there's no rule that says there can only be one. God can make anyone a prophet or a king or a Messiah at any time. I, um, I have a vast and tremendous knowledge of the universe. So I know about peoples in other places. Many of us think of religion or um, science as something that's only in the world that we're in maybe, or some worlds. But when we think about um, knowledge, it's something that can be available to any man at any time. And the knowledge they might seek on other worlds might be knowledge that we have and knowledge that we don't. Many of them might not want to do space travel. In the earth, many men might not want to go. So when we um, consider, I'm not sure how I want to say this, so I'm just going to say it. So I actually have knowledge of many worlds, space travel, and physics, math, and um, what in the earth we call science. 
and other things that um, are in addition to what you would consider to be just like religion. And the reason uh, that is is because uh, when a man lives and dies, um, I uh, he's a ghost, but he's still a man. This confuses a lot of people, and it confuses the angels also. He's still a ghost, so but he's still a man. So there's no reason to treat him any differently. See, a lot of Christians think that when they go to the heaven, it's like a closed box and then they just worship God all the time or something. But actually they fuck off all the time. Being a ghost is a, it's an eternity of incredible experiences. They're just fucking amazing. So as a ghost, they get to, uh, God takes them on field trips. They get to see things and go places. They don't just stay in heaven. He takes them from the heaven. It's called the heaven, like the earth. There's one. So like one day, if there's two places called the heaven, we might say, you know, they're, you know, each of the two, they might be described differently. So it's like the earth, you know, we say the earth, not, but we can also say earth. We can say heaven. Anyways, they're, um, they go to heaven, but they, they actually leave and go places sometimes on field trips. They see, see different things. They might see things they're interested in. Um, in fact, God takes them on time travel trips. They get to go to the future, the past. God can do all things. And they see, uh, they sit, get to see cool things and I get to talk to them. Uh, I've talked to uh, kings that have lived in the past. A lot of famous kings, you might say. The reason I say that is you might consider, like, who would you talk to? Everyone. I get to talk to a great multitude of the dead. But it's not a sin or a blasphemy or heresy or weird. It's just more like... Think about it more like fan fiction in a superhero universe where you get to talk to the strongest men that you know have ever lived. You know, like, angels are very strong where you get to talk to men that are like heroes and legends that have done legendary things, uh, whether they're um, a ghost, someone that lived in the earth and then died, or an angel, or someone else. There's actually others that live. And um, I get to see men and women from other worlds that look different, that look similar to us. You might say look the same. And so I get to talk to the ghosts a lot. And when I talk to them, I talk to them about their life, the future, the past. It's a lot of casual conversation. So in heaven, it's not like a closed box where they just worship God day and night or something. It's not like he's boring. Uh, he does a lot of interesting things and they do like worship. Believe it or not, being in the presence of God, they do like it. But um, Wicked men don't like it, but they do like praise of God and everyone likes being near God. They often call it God's peace. They like it. Um, maybe it's because God is so powerful and um, that when they're near God, they feel like they're safe from all danger or something. Or maybe this feels peaceful and happy. I mean, there's a lot of really cool things about being in heaven as a ghost. So I get to talk to them. And as um, a man known as Messiah the Prince for the future, forever, I'll be talking to ghosts, angels. You know, ghosts or spirits are interchangeable words. They're, they're interchangeable. Um, I get to talk to... Uh, others that you have not known and I'll also someday soon get to talk to men in the earth and so that means I can talk about anything there's no rules I can talk about space travel math physics science what it's like to be a wife or a husband uh, how to build a city city design um, what foods are best I can talk about anything and so God's given me a vast and tremendous knowledge and understanding of his magnificent creation so I speak of God and I will uh, forever uh, but in this podcast, I was just talking about spaceship design because um, this might be of general interest to you. Um,
the um, the angels, some men from another world, and some others are squabbling about. Um, there are men that are like angels also involved in this, a squabbling about spaceship design. Lucifer, the devil, wants to bring spaceship design to the earth because the earth has been unsuccessful at doing this. And Lucifer wants the glory of, of giving that knowledge. And so there's a big dispute right now uh, about this because of what's happened with some other men from another world that have space travel technology. And so the one of the big disputes right now among the angels, the angels are kind of like overviewers. They see what happens in the earth and other places sometimes, and they talk about what they've seen. So they kind of hear stories. It's like a, think of it like a report, but they also kind of review what's happened and sometimes consider what will happen. So they kind of are disputing right now about the future and spaceships and spaceship design. And what they're realizing is that there's really very few that know how to design a spaceship. And so I thought I'd do a whole podcast on it. Uh, because it's just something of general interest. There's a lot of men that might be interested in this. And right now, some of you might listen to the podcast and think about, like, some parts might be more interesting to you than others. But the reality is to build a spaceship is actually a big commitment. And then once you have it, it's yours for a long time. So if someone comes along and takes it, it's fucking disappointing. I mean, it's a huge fucking disappointment. Think about this. If one man builds a spaceship and designs it himself and builds it himself, and then goes into space and travels around and gets back to the earth. And then he's uh, surrounded by men in black vehicles with tinted windows and uh, fully automatic rifles. And they come and take a spaceship because he wanted to go into space and take a picture with his you know, $500 camera or something. I mean, that's really disappointing. It's a really disappointing experience. And then now he knows they're going to take it, weaponize it, and then never allow him to do it again. If he builds it again, they might come and steal that because they might see if it's different or improved technology. And he might not ever be allowed to use it again. So there's like a, this big discussion. And also, if men do start designing these things, what's almost inevitable is almost everyone in the world will want one. So one of the best things he can do is design it so it has to be built in an expensive way. So a few people have it. But maybe there can be space travel. And then you say, well, that's not fair. Well, what about people that want to just tour space? Think about all the 15-year-old boys. They would love to go up in a space bus and view the solar system. Right now, I have in my mind a design for a space bus that could tour the solar system in about four hours. Uh, and then there's the landing afterward, which is kind of a slow landing. That might take a couple hours. Just because it's a travel thing. You don't want a lot of G-forces with travel with um, teenagers and people that are, you know, not trained. So um, I, am I, I might put in a uh, inertial damping system, actually. I've never built one of those. I'm designing one just for fun. So, that, see, the universe is young. So, like, ideas that we have on the Earth, I've been thinking about those. How can we build hyperdrive into hyperspace, cross-dimensional... Um, inertial dampening, deflector shields, energy shields. I know how to build um, two kinds of ray guns. I know how to, um, I know a lot about the ones on the Falralkin spaceships and on the ones I built. So I'm interested in those things just because they're interesting. They don't have a lot of applications though for drilling. I think they'll contaminate the water by melting rocks and that might put um, things in the water we don't want to drink. But I'm looking at that. And so I just think it'd be fun to build an inertial dampening system. The ships I built didn't have the same kind of uh, design. I'll just talk about, I'm not saying any more about that. So um, th that's one hobby of mine. Now, if you're 
Now, if you're this far into the podcast, if you've listened for more than an hour, you might want to know a little bit about me and my hobbies, a hobby of mine, while I'm waiting for um, some things to happen in my life, is I'm looking at design of um, things that are on science fiction TV shows, like Flying Cities uh, from um, the Stargate Atlantis series, and also from the old Hindu books, even if that never happens. I'm extremely interested in it as a hobby. And I'm also interested in um, large spaceships with large crews just because it'd be fun to go to another world altogether. We don't really need large crews on a spaceship. And a spaceship, I think, that I designed wouldn't wouldn't need maintenance hardly at all, ever. I'm so confident with my design that I would use a single hull system just expecting there to be no punctures or breaks. And one reason I want that is if I built a ship that falls apart, there might be garbage in space, metal floating around. And I don't want that. I don't want to leave garbage in space. And right now, space is pretty much free of garbage. Um, I also uh, am interested in the Stargate series. Stargate SG-1, it's called, with the... uh, wormhole technology they called it instant travel to another world or near instant Uh, I've been looking at that the difficulty is moving our spirit our soul our mind our brain and our flesh instantly but not disassembling and reassembling it it needs to all go at the same time and right now I think I'm about 20% into a design that might work which means um, I'm starting to understand what's required Um, I'm also interested, though, in the spaceships that they used, uh, landing pads and things like that. I'm not fond of because when we space journey, we might land on someone's field or something. So the ships I designed are designed to be landed where they don't damage property. So we can land in a, you know, a fair number of places, but there's almost always like a field to land in. The reason I chose that is we don't want to land. If it looks paved, what if it's a road or a parking area or someone else's idea? And I don't want to land where it's a hard bump. Um, anyways, that's just some general thoughts about it. Um, I'm interested though in the, um, the technology they have, the handheld weapons. See in the SG one series, they made a lot of weapons. There are a lot of enemies. So what would happen is this one day, if one civilization gets handheld energy weapons, and right now I don't know of any in the whole universe, any, anywhere that God's created, then immediately who would need handheld weapons those that are fighting for their lives and so then there would immediately be armies and war if one army had all the weapons then they would be uh conquering throughout the galaxy so i'm interested in this staving off energy um weapon design and uh weapon design as long as possible and starting as much exploration instead So the sooner we have exploration and the longer the wait before we have weapons, the better in a lot of ways. Because there might be enemies. Now with stun weapons like that, they're not as effective as we might think. They actually just really hurt people. A lot of them are based on pain and going unconscious uh, anatomically is weird. 
Now, what would we do when we space travel? I'm interested in documentary. If there was a documentary of the first contact, the first time Earthlings, you know, men from Earth, preferably men, women, children, like a whole, like two families going would be fucking amazing because it looked normal and they wouldn't be as um, offended. And then you might, if you wanted to send others, it'd be interesting. But the first contact between, let's say, men from Earth talking to men from another world, if you put that on YouTube, it'd be, it would crush it. It would probably like break the YouTube statistics. And I'd hope you do it without ads just so people can see the, um, the video. So like that's cool, but also classification, you might say. But like knowing on the other worlds, there's different plants. The foods taste different. It looks like a leaf, but it tastes different. In the earth, we have a lot of green leaf foods that are bitter, which I like. But on um, another world, there is some green leaf stuff that um, is sweet. Uh, and some that have a very, I'd say, complex flavor. Might be a way to describe it right now. So there's some really cool foods uh, to eat on other worlds. They typically, I think, all have bread. I think many have corn. I don't know if they all have it. Um, one world has a food that resembles coffee. I don't know if there's any caffeine in it, but that drink is amazing. It is so delicious. In the earth, I can't find uh, much or anything like it. I mean, it's amazing drink. So sampling their foods and drinks would be amazing. I mean, it's really, really, really cool. And seeing other foods um, in other universes, if you're interested, there are actual other universes. There are cows that make milk that taste a little different and strawberries that are a little bit different tasting and other foods that are different tasting. They have different song, different dance, different languages, different culture. And a study of language is amazing. There's so much wisdom in studying the different languages in the world. And I might talk about that one day, the wisdom of languages, just for fun in the podcast. So those are some of my interests. I'm also in galaxy empire building right now. I'm into that. If um, some people build communication systems with other worlds, they could hear the words and speak and ask questions and talk about their plans. And then someone could actually build an empire of peace before anyone thinks of conquering. Simply with communication, by speaking words. I think that's brilliant. Here's to an empire of peace. First contact. And... making friends throughout the galaxy, men on other worlds.